Stories connect us. They build empathy and understanding across difference. Stories are the basic building blocks of community. If you are brave enough to share your story and have the empathy to listen. But when was the last time someone really listened to you or you listened to someone else? Each episode, we choose a theme and stories from our archives of thousands of stories collected using the Facing Projects model. Every story you hear was produced by two people who took the time to listen and share and collaborate on a monologue told from one of their lived experiences. People who listened instead of judged. What if we all sought to understand? This is The Facing Project. Jared, do you ever wish you didn't know about things like extreme poverty and genocide and all the injustices that are in the world and the famine in Yemen? Yeah, I do. And I know that's a really privileged perspective to say that I, I wish I didn't know about those things like poverty, human trafficking, things that I've, I've seen. I often, you know, look at people like my parents who I love to death and, and they're really happy people, right? But they've lived the, this life where sometimes I'm jealous of it, to admit. They, they get to come home after a long day. They're retired now, but when they actually were in the working world, they'd come home after a long day. They would watch Wheel of Fortune, Jeopardy. They would sit in the living room, have conversation with each other, maybe watch a made-for-TV movie, and then go to bed, get up, and repeat. And I grew up thinking that's probably what my life would be like. And it seemed really easy. And I watched them grow older. And us kids, we were their life. And then the grandkids have become their life. And while they're happy, uh, you know, they haven't always had to focus on things like poverty in the world or, or hunger. But because of that privilege that they gave me, because of the life that they were leading, I was able to have opportunities that they didn't always have because they focused so much time on me that I got to study abroad, I got more engaged. And honestly, I think that had it not been for them, maybe the work that that we do now wouldn't have happened. But because we do the work that we do, capturing these stories and, and our travels, seeing people firsthand who have these experiences, once you see these things, you can't unsee them and, and and you can't unsee the injustices that are in the world. So you're saying it would be nice just to watch Pat Sajak and Vanna White? I mean... Who haven't changed at all. No, I mean, they look happy, right? <laughs> like, what what's their secret to life? But yeah, but yeah I mean, I, I would often think this must be what life's like. And then you get older and realize that life isn't always like that. I mean, finding so everyone. much joy and like, there's two of those consonants. Two, there's two J's on the board. Like, yeah. wouldn't that be great? Right. If that's yeah. what it could be. I, I kind of feel the same way that, that you do. I feel like it's a bit of a it might would be maybe nice to live in a fantasy world. I still feel like that's like a really privileged position to have. Uh, but wouldn't it be nice if we thought all humans live happy, healthy and fulfilled lives? And, you know, through our work and, and the work that I do, uh, like I've seen those injustices and inequalities that exist in the world. And I wonder, is it having that awareness? Is it a gift? Or is it a burden? Well, maybe both. Yeah. Right. I mean, I feel like sometimes it can weigh on you, right? I think the yeah. stories that our listeners hear sometimes don't leave you like skipping down the street like you're happier. But I think there's a lot more to life than than being happy. Yeah. 
I mean, they leave should leave you asking questions and questioning yourself, others, etc. Right? I love Game of Thrones. Yeah, I don't know if you. Uh, Game of no. Do I look like I? You can. Game of you Thrones? can have my HBO. In the Game of Thrones, there's, there's these uh, Game of Thrones, not throws. A uh, Game of Thrones. There's a. Uh, there's these healers. They're called maesters, and they all wear these chains around their necks. Mm. And um, the more experienced they are, the more chains that they have. And sometimes I feel like that about the stories that we come in contact with through all the projects that we do. Yeah. Uh, is that some of these stories are pretty heavy and mm-hmm. they all have this weight to them. And I've, I've wondered, like, you know, wouldn't it be nice not to have that weight? Although I wouldn't yeah. want that, right? Yeah. Uh, so I've looked a lot into this. There's a, um, an author named Emily Esfahani Smith who wrote the book, The Power of Meaning, Finding Fulfillment in a World Obsessed with Happiness. And she argues that long-term happiness actually comes from meaning. So she writes about the four pillars of meaning. And, and the first pillar is having a sense of belonging. Like, do you matter to others and do others matter to you? Like, yeah. that's something you can't get from Wheel of Fortune. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you have to be out in the world interacting yeah. with people. But you could get it from your family. Right. Yeah. yeah so, no, so I don't somebody somebody could exist just in pillar one because they may get that fulfillment from their their children, their grandchildren, etc. Yeah, I have this tendency. I some I think would life be great just like putting a blanket over my head, watching Netflix all day. Yeah. You know, like I think that we all have that tendency. Yeah. Right? Some just, days, absolutely. Right? I mean, Game of Thrones all day long. That right. sounds like yeah. a fantastic thing for for me. I don't know, but pillar two, uh, purpose. Are you using your time, talents, life experiences, and skills to make contribution to others and to society so again this is like outside of yourselves finding meaning in others and the the third and fourth ones are a little bit less but i know you'll you like the fourth one they're a little bit less about other people and number three is transcendence um, a moment where you're lifted above the hustle and bustle and you feel your sense of self fade away and the fourth one which i think you'll like mm-hmm. is about storytelling yep like the narrative of our lives that we tell ourselves and the meaning that we get from, which we've talked about. Yeah, it could other... be ascending, descending, oscillating. So those are the pillars. And the pillars point us to finding meaning outside of ourselves and others. So JR, we've got a really kind of amazing example of the four pillars at play. All right. You ready for it? Yeah, sure. Go for so it. So Victor Frankl. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you've heard of him. Uh, he sounds familiar, but honestly, I know probably not. So he's an Austrian neurologist and psychiatrist, and he was at Auschwitz. Okay. And um, he started to work with people there and help them find meaning, some meaning, and they would find that meaning by helping others. Like they felt that they, they, we all have a need to be needed, and he helped them discover that. And people that Frankel worked with, we're actually um, more likely to live through this horrible, horrible Like the worst circumstances anybody could ever go through. Yeah. yeah, and just to think that you can find some meaning and purpose in those circumstances kind of gives us hope when, when the rest of us are searching for meaning and purpose in our obviously far less extreme circumstances. So, so Franco has a really great quote I want to share with you, and it's this. Being human always points and is directed to something or someone other than oneself, be it a meaning to fulfill or another human being to encounter. The more one forgets himself by giving himself to a cause to serve or another person to love, the more human he is. So, JR, back to the original question. Yeah, so is awareness a gift or a burden? That one. 
So I think when we become aware of something, we have the opportunity to act on that awareness. And acting on awareness gives us purpose, enhancing our lives. But before that awareness, someone has to educate us. It's not a responsibility for that someone to educate us about their lives, but it is an opportunity. Yeah. So today's theme is empathy and proximity. We'll hear two stories, one from a mom who asks you to see her daughter for who she is, and the other from a man who stands up for himself, and ultimately for others. Ask. Dana Williams' story as told to Clarissa Bowers from Facing Autism in Muncie, Indiana, performed by Melinda Massinio. Ask. Ask why she doesn't always make eye contact. Ask why she doesn't scream when a spider scampers across her dinner plate like most any person would. Ask why she sometimes repeats every word you say. It's echolalia, in case you were curious. Please, just don't look at me and think, what's wrong with that child? I assure you, there is nothing wrong with her. Stella is the funniest, most interesting person I have ever met, and she's only three years old. Every single day with Stella is a joy, an adventure, and a challenge that I'm eager to meet. But not a challenge in the way you might think. Each day I am faced with the task of expanding my own mind so that I can see the world around me the way that she does. As just one example of the amazing ways my worldview has changed, Stella sees words as sounds, not individual letters with individual sounds like T-R-E-E. When she sees the word tree, it's almost like she sees it as a picture of a sound rather than four different sounds put together, which is different, but not wrong. Imagine a world where you are consistently being challenged to see the world through the eyes of a child. I'll let you in on a secret. It's amazing. It's just one of the amazing things you see when you choose to look at autism as a difference rather than a disability. In recent years, people have really been emphasizing the idea of inclusion and acceptance when it comes to race, sexuality, and religion. The increase in bullying among school-age kids has prompted parents to rally around their kids and raise them to be proud of their individuality. But for some reason, developmental disorders have remained attached to their negative stigmas. Whose disorder is Stella's autism? Hers or ours? Isn't it our responsibility as parents to get to know our own child and figure out what works best for her in terms of how she learns? Author Paul Collins said, Autists are the ultimate square pegs. And the problem with pounding a square peg into a round hole is not that the hammering is hard work. It's that you're destroying the peg. When I tell people Stella has autism, the response is often, Oh, I'm sorry. A hush tends to fall over the conversation, and suddenly every bit of eye contact is tainted with a, a hint of sadness. I'm not sorry, and I'm not sad. Nothing bad happened to Stella the day she was diagnosed. She remained the same as she had always been. I, I mean, I felt sad when I heard that my child may struggle, but my worry never came from a place of regret or bitterness towards autism. It was simply that I feared we wouldn't be able to understand each other. In the seven months since her diagnosis, it's become apparent that while there are many things in the world neither of us will ever understand, we do understand each other. What parent doesn't fear the struggles their child will face? 
I consider myself lucky to have a child with struggles that can be identified. And I'm grateful that we have proven ways to help her. What many people see on the outside as a struggle, I see as a blessing. My beautiful girl whose everyday successes never go unnoticed. I've been given the opportunity to work with amazing professionals that spend their entire day helping Stella communicate effectively and helping me understand her. Isn't that kind of a, a gift? Yes, there are trials that come with having a child with autism, but there are always amazing triumphs to celebrate. And we spend a lot of time celebrating Stella. Some days will be good and some days will be bad, but that's a fact of life not exclusive to autism. If I could make three wishes for Stella's future, it wouldn't be for a cure or a magic drug to take away her unique traits that came with her autism. Instead, my first wish would be for Stella to find her perfect stride marching to her own drummer. My second wish would be for people to express their curiosity with their words rather than their sideway glances. And my third wish would, of course, be to have more wishes. Stella's my child. And she should be known as a whole, unique, funny, fearless, beautiful child, and not a disability or a disorder. Often we avoid difference. We see someone who is doing something that we're not used to, or someone who looks different or acts different, and we just kind of walk to the next aisle in the grocery store. And that's why I really appreciate about Dana's story. She's full on asking us to ask her about it. Like, how can we learn from others unless we're willing to be near them and ask those questions? I can really relate to Dana's story because my son Griffin is on the on the spectrum as well. And people come up to me and this same thing they said to Dana, like, oh, I'm sorry. They really don't know what to say. And I could take this position where I could be offended by that, because I mean, there's, I mean, there's some challenges with Griffin, but there's nothing wrong with him. There's nothing to be sorry for. He's beautiful, amazing little boy, you know, but we have to allow that safe space for people to make mistakes. Yeah, I agree. I think so often we don't allow that space for those conversations to happen. I can say as a member of the LGBTQ community, I often hear my peers say, well, it's not our responsibility to teach people about our lives. They need to go figure out and have that process on their own. But I disagree a little bit because I think it's, it is our responsibility to educate others to a certain point. Now, I would agree, like once we start having conversations, they need to take the time to reflect within themselves and take other opportunities to learn. But we have to have those initial conversations, right? We must be open to questions so that we can connect across difference. And I really appreciated Dana's approach to life and her honesty to say, just ask me about my life and about my kid. Stand Up. Bob Carr's story is told to Megan Summers from the Facing Project at Wittenberg University in Springfield, Ohio, performed by Larry Beck. I remember how I came out to my brother. I invited him to accompany me to a bar in town. I think I secretly wished he'd say no. Don't be surprised, I said. Men surrounded us, and it didn't take him long to discover that I was at home with them. The flamboyant and proud, the bright and shiny members of a community even they themselves knew was vulnerable. He gave me a questioning look, and I nodded. I watched the bartender pour two shots for a couple with button-up shirts and glasses. 
Both of them wore pink and plaid with pride and flaunted their engagement rings. I never understood why they would still come to a bar after they met someone. My brother cleared his throat. Tell me, are you or aren't you? I nodded again. He hugged me. How long have you known? I asked. You're asking like I don't know you, he said. We left it at that and everything was okay until our mother found out. I thought my mom's eyes would pop out of her skull. What will God think? I hadn't prepared any answers. I hadn't considered all of the backup I would need in case she decided to chuck a Bible at my head. I'd only accepted the invitation because I thought it would involve a sandwich and some coffee, not an exorcism and some holy water. I'm sure he already knows, I finally said. I peered across the kitchen table and, and rubbed my fingertips along its grooves and dents. This is where I slammed my sippy cup down when my mom wouldn't give me a brownie, and that's where I tried to carve my name when I was ten and thought knives were cool. I wanted to jump into the table as if it were a well and get trapped among its history. I wanted to go back to the times when my mother consoled me instead of chastised me. Anything besides this. Who all knows? she asked. I didn't answer. Who knows? I haven't told anyone else, I said. The truth is, my brother's wife blabbed to my mom. That made it worse. You're lying to me. She flung open the Bible and pointed at a highlighted section. God doesn't like liars. I stared at my thumbs, waiting for the end of the verse. When she was done, I stood up and grabbed my coat. Did you hear me? She reached for my arm. We need to address this. I moved my arm away from hers. I'm not listening to this. You need to talk to God or else you're going to hell. She was panicking at that point, hoping she could scare me into submission. She called every one of our relatives, asking them if they knew I was gay. She thought she was the last to know. I guess she felt betrayed. She still calls me every now and then to give me the normal spiel about how I'm going to burn in hell. We don't have a great relationship anymore. I came out to the rest of my family later in life, but I've known I was gay since I was a teenager. Faggot. was some bully from my seventh grade science class shoving someone's head inside a locker. He kept repeating that as if it were a magical chant as if saying that a thousand times would make it less true, less obvious, less threatening. He stopped when the other kid fought back. What's the point? The kid asked his bully. I found out on Facebook that the bully came out as gay almost 40 years later, but the bullying continued through school. It was always something. Something would make me pop my collar up to my ears and thank my lucky stars that I wasn't a noticeable target. I played my cards right, and no one suspected that I was a piece of derogatory slang or a horny 13-year-old lusting after straight, flaccid dicks. No one bothered me. I pretended that one penis was enough and convinced myself that girls meant acceptance. If I dated girls, then no one would know. For a while, I told myself that was how life was going to be. I hit on girls while I glanced at boys from across the room. Eventually, I got married. That was the hardest part of the ruse. I just didn't know there were other options at the time. We divorced as she found out I was gay. I got a job, a home, and I raised our daughter. I had custody of her until she was 13. 
I think my ex-wife was upset. She warned our daughter about me, my gayness. She spoke about me as if I had the plague. I don't want you around that kind of company, she told her. The funny thing is that her new husband found her in bed with another woman. My daughter left as soon as she found out. She didn't need that kind of company. I got fired from my job when my boss discovered I was gay. There was no other reason I could find. No warning. The word spread and people slowly drifted away from me just as I drifted from the old gay bar scene. Time passed and the world began to change. On my walks now, I see two men holding hands and no one comments on it. No one interrupts them and no one thinks twice about them being there, enjoying each other's company. That's so encouraging to see. When people don't see differences as problems, that's when the world will be a better place. People ask me if I stand up for people who are told they're different. I'm happy to say that I can answer that with a yes, and I always will. The ending of Bob's story had the sadness to it, it's like this idea of lost opportunities. How he says seeing men now holding hands on the street and no one says anything. And in his time of youth, that wasn't okay outside of the walls of gay bars. What Bob didn't say in his story that I think we both felt was so important, right? Because we had the opportunity to go to the event and actually see Bob there and see him interact, was that he went on to open a gay bar later in life, right? He created the space for others who had accepted their stories to meet others who were just like them. Yeah, I remember being in that room, and we never knew who Bob was, but when that story was being read, you could see who it was. Oh, yeah, I was. mean, the emotion that came from that, right? To, to, to feel this experience. That people were listening to that story. I, I think if we take this posture of listening to those who are different and who are willing to share, we can become better aware of their realities and our lives can be enriched. We've now made it easier than ever to participate in The Facing Project. Visit us online at facingproject.com to learn how to submit a story that will become part of our national archive and could have the potential to be featured on this radio program. This is where you can also find other Facing Project stories and how to start a full-fledged Facing Project in your community. And to continue the conversation about this episode, find us on Facebook at The Facing Project. And to listen to past episodes of this program, visit indianapublicradio.org slash The Facing Project. The Facing Project show is produced by Sean Ashcraft from Indiana Public Radio at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana, and directed by Laura Williamson and Michael Dane, with editorial assistance provided by Amory Orchard. We are your hosts, Kelsey Timmerman and J.R. Jamison. Until next time, we wish you the courage to share your own story and the empathy to listen to others. Mm-hmm.